Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Today on the program, jobs are coming back to coal country in Wyoming, reuniting families and boosting the economy. The job numbers aren't as high as before the crash, but things are starting to even out. I think that's what people would like is just stability. Superintendent Jillian Balo sees opportunity as Wyoming transitions to new federal education guidelines. There needs to be more emphasis put on the growth that students make. And a story about how Wyoming leaders may change the Endangered Species Act. For every hundred species added to the list, only three have recovered enough to come off of the list. And we'll hear about a Cheyenne program to develop more service dogs. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming coal companies are out of bankruptcy and are rehiring. President Trump's promise to put coal miners back to work appears to have come true to some extent in northeastern Wyoming, where nearly 300 mining jobs have returned, bringing residents home and boosting local morale. Still, there's a lot of uncertainty for the state and the coal industry overall. Inside Energy's Madeline Beck reports from Gillette at the heart of Wyoming's Powder River Basin coal country. This is what local TV news station K2 reported back in April 2016. It's been a dark few days for the energy sector in Wyoming. That's when Wyoming coal mines laid off more than 450 workers amid financial troubles exacerbated by low natural gas prices and debt. Wyoming Governor Matt Mead warned about the impacts at a press conference last year following the layoffs. Your shopping, uh, your hotels, uh, your restaurants, all of them will feel the effects of miners being laid off. And coal miner Gail Jap worried about her future. What in the world am I going to do? I'm single. I'm 64. You know, I have a mortgage. Am I going to lose my house? Coal prices have risen since last year, and major coal companies Peabody Energy, Arch Coal, and Alpha Natural Resources have come out of bankruptcy. The Gillette Workforce Center had a front-row seat for the town's economic woes. The office has cream-colored walls, decorated with motivational posters, and pictures of coal mines. Ramona Peterson is the manager of the center, which helps people find a new job. At the height of the layoffs last year, we were uh, between 250 and 300 people a day. Peterson says her office is seeing about a third of that now, as more employers in and outside the mines are looking to hire. She says job seekers aren't just from coal, but also from oil and gas, which has also been struggling amid low prices for the last few years. When the oil and gas industry started their layoffs, it was before the coal, but that's had a huge impact in our community also. Kevin Cecil was laid off from the oil and gas industry last April. He says there weren't any jobs in the area, and he had to leave to find work in Indiana. For five months, he worked out of state while his family was back in Gillette. He said he only saw them about two weeks during that time. It made it real difficult, you know, missing sporting events, dance, whatever the kids were involved in, you know, I missed a lot of it. His wife Kayla and their two children didn't move with Kevin because the kids were in school, Kayla had a job, and they couldn't sell their house in a glutted housing market. It was rough. I mean, having to stay here with the kids, just them and I, and then, you know, there was a lot of tears. It was hard. Jaylin, their daughter, is nine years old. 
Without my dad, I, it was very sad for the first day. About 330 people left Gillette between July 2015 and July 2016, or about 1% of the population, according to U.S. Census Bureau estimates. Kevin says he knows people who are still trying to pay off a house there, even after moving elsewhere for work. Kevin gambled with the job market and moved home, eventually getting a job at Peabody Energy's Caballo coal mine. But that mine only hired back 11 people. Nobody believes that we're going to reach those peak employment rates that we've had before at the mines. Gino Palazzari is the spokesman for the city of Gillette. What ha- used to happen when these busts used to occur is people would leave. But now that people have been here and they have kids and grandkids here, they don't want to go. And if they've left, they've come back. Wyoming's perennial problem with attracting new industries to the state and evening out the boom and bust cycle is its low population. So we, we have maybe a little bit more of a mobile workforce than we've had in the past. We have been known as the energy capital of the nation. Louise Carter King is Gillette's mayor. She says Gillette is working with two other cities to form a, quote, new growth alliance to market their area to new businesses. She's also bullish on the new research projects in the city to study how to clean up coal and keep it out of the air. I believe with all this technology and research coming in, we're going to be the energy research capital of the nation. Many in coal country are praising President Trump for his regulatory rollback, but the administration's proposed budget would slash funding for energy research like clean coal, as well as funding for other city projects. Still, the mayor hopes other infrastructure projects in a steady coal industry will allow the local economy to even out. If we can even just get too stable, rather than the ups and downs, just, you know, one straight line, even if it isn't way up there, I think that's what people would like, is just stability. And I do think we will we will get there. For Inside Energy, I'm Madeline Beck. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration dedicated to America's energy issues. In 2015, No Child Left Behind was replaced by the Every Student Succeeds Act, known as ESSA. It gives states more authority over K-12 education than they've had in nearly two decades. Now that the two-year transition period is over, ESSA will take effect this fall. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson takes a look at how Wyoming's plan is taking shape. The transition to ESSA has been met with enthusiasm from Jillian Balo, superintendent of public instruction. No Child Left Behind was uh, very punitive in nature. And Balo says it felt disconnected from the needs of Wyoming. It was accountability uh, that was driven by compliance. If you're complying um, and if your students look like this, then you're doing well. If you're complying and your teachers look like this, then you're doing well. With ESSA, Gone are the days of Common Core, which held students to national standards. In contrast, Balo says, Wyoming now has to define for itself what doing well means for both students and teachers. There's a lot of opportunity for us to put our money where our mouth is and take responsibility and ownership over our challenges and really build on what we do well. Balo says parents and students will be happy to know the system being proposed reduces the emphasis on high-stakes testing. Assessment will be less cookie cutter and more like baking a cake. When I'm checking a a cake, 
to see if it's done, I don't just put one toothpick in the middle. I check it in different places. And that's really what um, what we want to do to ensure that our students are competitive um, in Wyoming nationally and internationally. So while it's largely up to the Wyoming Department of Education to determine what to monitor, this new level of authority requires states to take a closer look at achievement gaps. For example, shining a, a spotlight on, on our homeless students is really important and, and not something that, that we've taken an opportunity to do in Wyoming before. ESSA requires that states focus on the needs of subgroups such as low-income students, students of color, kids with disabilities, and English language learners. And Wyoming wants to go one step further and support students caught up in the juvenile justice system. Here's Balo again. ESSA really stresses that there needs to be more emphasis put on the growth that students make instead of every student looking the same by the time that they're a high school graduate. But kids, don't get too excited. This doesn't mean you'll never take another standardized test. What's changing with Wyoming's plan is who's authoring that test. Students previously took a test nicknamed PAUSE. Starting this year, students will take a test nicknamed YTOP. In a virtual town hall meeting, an educator asked Julie McGee, the director of the WDE's accountability division, what happens if students don't score as high on the new test? She responded that it's not meant to be punitive. The way that we're trying to structure the plan is to make it more um, informative and um, that we're coming from a place of support, not a place of, you know, we're going to shut down the schools and fire everybody from the top down the way that people feared under no child left behind. What's also supposed to change with ESSA is not only how that information gets used, but how it gets shared. A more user-friendly reporting system is promised as a part of the plan, which will help parents and the community compare school performance across the state. Walt Wilcox, the chair of the State Board of Education, says teachers are also hungry for easily accessible data that allows them to track progress. He says without it... It'd be the same concept as um, I pop in the car and I just guesstimate without looking at my gas gauge about when I might run out of gas instead of monitoring that fuel gauge all the way. And we all know that's a bad idea in Wyoming. Wilcox says this data sharing will help facilitate what are called professional learning communities. And it will allow teachers to share what's working, what's not working, uh, to share their interventions, to share their strategies. But how will educators and parents know how Wyoming is stacking up nationally? ESSA will still require schools to participate in the National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card. Superintendent Jillian Balo says under ESSA, Wyoming will be able to focus on its own unique set of challenges and goals. This is a really exciting time in education. It's certainly exciting to, to sit in my seat, but, um, but also exciting at the local level because we have so many opportunities. After a 45-day public comment period, the Wyoming Department of Education is preparing its 76-page blueprint for review by the governor in July. And then on to the U.S. Department of Education for final approval in August. For Wyoming Public Radio, this is Tennessee Watson. When we come back, we'll hear about the return of downtown Dubois following a devastating fire. This is Open Spaces.
Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. A historic gateway to Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Parks is making a comeback this summer after a fire devastated its downtown business district in December of 2014, burning down four buildings. Correspondent Leslie Stratmon has more. Rising from the ashes in Dubois after a void of more than two years is a one-story building that stretches across a city block, built of cedar to fit in with the town's western look. Mayor Twyla Blakeman says the new building is a welcome replacement for the black hole left by the fire that destroyed several downtown businesses, including a landmark, Stewart's Trapline Gallery. That was heartbreaking, especially for little uh, Kit Stewart and was a very beautiful little place full of artifacts and many, many paintings and artwork. Kit, of course, she's older and she just hasn't had the energy to start up again. She could, says the mayor, because miraculously the jewelry survived. The fire came through the ceiling of the studio and it was so cold when they put the water on, it encased the showcases in ice. And so she didn't lose a whole lot of her jewelry. Most of the turquoise jewelry she was able to to get back. Blakeman says other stores destroyed by the fire, like the Mart, which featured several vendors, will also be missed. But at this point, she's looking to the future and the promise the new building will bring. I can't help but think they're just going to be a wonderful asset to our community. Property owner Jeff Sussman says there are now three new spaces which can be subdivided to accommodate more businesses. Two, he says, are already rented to a pharmacy and a photo gallery, and he's negotiating for a Western clothing store. The New York real estate developer says he's been invested in Dubois for 30 years now, since he purchased the Diamond D Ranch there. It didn't occur to us not to rebuild it. Financially, it was not the brightest thing to do, but... I will create as good a financial situation as possible to hopefully get them to ultimately own the properties. He found Dubois and the ranch when he heard an inner calling to the West. We took one of those great leaps of faith because the fellow who told us about it said, but it's in a great little town and getting there is a great experience. If you fly to Riverton or you fly to Jackson, the drive's beautiful, which it certainly is for Jackson. It's spectacular. It's been a great, great thing. Now he hopes the rebuild will be a great investment for others and believes a mercantile or artist mart might be a good fit. This is a small town, but it's got a great number of craftspeople. Well, I think somebody could curate some of those in a mart. Like, I'd love to see somebody who knew how to do that. Considering the little town in the Wind River Mountains doubles in size with vacationers over the summer months, Sussman hopes other entrepreneurs will see the business potential and take a leap of faith like he did those many years ago. Businesses are set to open in the new building on the 1st of July. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Leslie Stratmone. A new art exhibition at the University of Wyoming explores and expands what it means to live in and love the American West. Topophilia, a loving reconfiguration of the mythology of our American West through studio practices and collaborative projects, was created by the founders of the Wyoming Art Party, 
a Laramie-based group of artists that aims to connect the community through art. I sat down with them to find out more about their latest work. I'm Meg Thompson. I'm Adrian Vetter. And I am June Glasson, and we are the Wyoming Art Party. First off, June, what is topophilia? Topophilia is a strong sense of place, which often becomes mixed with a sense of cultural identity among certain people and a love of certain aspects of such a place. So, so why <laughs> topophilia? Um, I think when we were creating this show, we um, pulled together a lot of the work the Wyoming Art Party had been doing and a lot of work that we had individually been doing in our studios. Um, and we were kind of discussing the different themes in the community work we do and in our studio practice. And we realized that there's a strong theme of place in all our work, um, and more specifically, the myth of the West. This is Meg. Um, to add on to what June was saying, we sort of realized all of our work is motivated by a love of Wyoming and the sense of place combined with the sort of cultural complexities between the myth, historical myth of the West and the actual cultural lives we live here. And sometimes that the myth of the American West doesn't tell the whole story that we experience living here. You know, I originally come from New York. Uh, Meg and Adrian are both from Wyoming. And we all make work that is inspired by living here and making art here. Right. So all three of you have deep ties to the West and clearly also a deep love for it. Meg, you grew up in Laramie. Adrian, you grew up in Riverton. But you've all also spent significant time other places as well. Considering your experience, Adrian, how do you think the American West should be reconfigured or, or reimagined? Well, I think for me, uh, with my individual work, I approach the topic of the you know love of place and kind of like a you know you love you love something enough to um, be critical and analyze it to try to make it better and so like I, at first I was like I don't know if you know my work seems like pretty critical for uh, you know expressing a love but it comes from a place of wanting to add more narratives uh, that we can tell about Wyoming in the West versus just relying on you know, stereotypical mythologies of the West. Like cowboys and Indians, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, that enters into it, but just like trying to add a multi-layered perspective. So what are some of the myths maybe that you are trying to reimagine, maybe a little bit more specifically? Meg? I think the co a common myth is that the West was, quote, settled by white men. In reality, both historically and currently, the West has been and is made up of multicultural different identities, gender identities, racial identities. It's never as simple, and this is true for any myth around the world, it's never as simple as the myth portrays it. And the complexities of real life, especially culturally, are always harder to tell in a simple story. So we just wanted to give voice and room to express the other identities. And I think it does a disservice to quote, cowboys, this sort of black and white image that, you know, they're tough and heartless and like there's a one-dimensional story about a cowboy. But the cowboys I know here are so talented, so thoughtful, very in touch with the land. And I just think that including the stories of everybody helps broaden the story of what it means to be a cowboy in Wyoming also. Gender identity in the West seems to be a big focus of this show. And I think for the Wyoming Art Party, you have been in conversation with that a lot. Is that personal to you as artists, Adrian? Well, we talked about this um, earlier this month. All of us identify as queer to some extent, and 
Um, I think that identity plays into the lens that we look at the West. It might not be really overt in our um, artwork. Meg might have more to add because she's been thinking about this more specifically, I think. This is Meg, and I think with a lot of the tension in our country right now, it feels like there's been a lot of basically violent talk about women, and it really has made me, it has sort of brought up a lot of memories of growing up in Wyoming, and I'm a third-generation Wyomingite, and my grandparents and mother, my grandmothers, like what they went through, and I feel like on one level, my life is so much easier than theirs in Wyoming. On another level, like I can't believe the same sort of issues that we deal with nationally and in Wyoming about respect for women, pay gap. I mean, I think about, you know, women ranchers, like the ones that I knew growing up would be branding calves and making dinner for the whole crew. Like, And I just think that story in the West gets lost. And it's not an attack on the role that men or white men have played, but it's just trying to make a more inclusive story about the importance of women, mothers, that different people have had. For someone who's going to come in and, and see this exhibition, what can somebody maybe expect to see, just as a little taste? June? So walking into the gallery, I think you're automatically, you know, struck with, it's, it's a very, very visually rich show with a lot of different styles of work in it. So fabric banners, posters, photographs, corrugated metal paintings, traps covered in fringe, thousands of tiny uh, buffalo skulls. <laughs> So I think just walking in there, you get to experience a kind of different or wider idea of what Western art can look like. I think as artists, too, you know, when we were invited to do the show, we didn't know what the show was going to be until we started installing in the space. So there's, you know, like all our community projects, there is a lot of collaboration in what we do. So kind of to bring our work in there and to we're still thinking about how our work speaks to each other how it speaks to what we do in the community as well. So it's a process that we're still actually trying to figure out. June Glasson, Meg Thompson, and Adrian Vetter are the Wyoming Art Party. Thank you all for your time today. Thank, Thank you, you. Thank you. When we come back, we'll hear about efforts to reform the Endangered Species Act and a visit with researchers about eagles. This is Open Spaces. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. The Endangered Species Act is threatened, or at least facing significant reform. Momentum in Congress and in Western states is building to make changes to the landmark regulation that protects threatened animal and plant species and their habitats. Wyoming Public Radio's Cooper McKim reports. On a warm, sunny day, a large group of people surround a truck wearing rubber boots and sunglasses. As the driver lifts up the trunk, cameras snap to capture the hopping, palm-sized amphibian in clear boxes. All right, our toads are here. <laughs> These are Wyoming toads, one of the state's 12 endangered species. Doug Kynath is with the Fish and Wildlife Service. He's leading a group to reintroduce around 250 toads back into the wild. We're gonna release a, a, a couple, bo a few boxes right down over here. Down at the lakeshore, Sharon Taylor kneels down next to her two daughters. 
she picks up a brown warty toad in between her thumb and finger. Let's put him, this is Caitlin's. Christina, step back, because we don't want to step on him. Taylor did her PhD on the Wyoming toad's decline. She says this is the last spot wild Wyoming toads were seen in 1985. Then only 16 individuals were found. There he goes. Oh, that's adorable. Now released an endangered species. It was over 30 years ago that the Wyoming toad was first listed as endangered. The toad recovery to date has been a huge collaborative effort with landowners, nonprofits, the state, and the University of Wyoming. As to when the toad will be taken off the list, Fish and Wildlife Services Kyneth said, recovery will take a long time. That is a biological question, not a political question. But it is often a political question. The Endangered Species Act, or ESA, is credited with keeping 99% of listed species from crossing over into extinction. Nevertheless, critics contend the act is outdated and ineffective, burdening local wildlife managers with excessive federal oversight and leading to long-running legal battles to get species off the list. Brian Nesvik is with Wyoming's Game and Fish Department. He's seen firsthand the failures of the act and how state management would be superior. One example, the grizzly bear. By all biological and scientific measures, grizzly bears have been recovered in Wyoming since 2003. And to this day, after being delisted once and relisted again, they still remain under federal protections. The goal is not perpetual federal management. And if there was ever a time for reform, it's now. Both Congress and state leaders are taking advantage of the current anti-regulatory fervor. Since January, 28 pieces of legislation were introduced taking aim at the bill. Several focused on making amendments to the act itself. Why is now the right time? I think, number one, because it's overdue. I think, number two, due in large part to Governor Mead's leadership. In June of 2015, Wyoming Governor Matt Mead launched an initiative as the chairman of the Western Governors Association to examine the ESA and make policy recommendations to Congress. Governor Mead's policy advisor, David Wilms, explains. When we have a species that's recovered, how do we get to that recovered species to the point of delisting where it's back in state control? Still, Wilms says he recognizes changing the act may be an uphill battle, but reforms might be easier to swallow from a state-led movement than from Congress. He says that reforms wouldn't weaken the act, but improve it. And Wyoming Senator John Brasso is on board. Well, today the Environment and Public Works Committee continues its efforts to consider feedback from state officials on the need to modernize the Endangered Species Act. That was a Senate committee hearing from last month. Brasso says the act just isn't working in its current form. For every hundred species added to the list, only three have recovered enough to come off of the list. Well, you know, as a doctor, I will tell you, for every hundred people I put in the hospital, only three recovered enough to get out. You know, I lose my medical license. Like Nesvik, Brasso says he believes getting species off the list and back into state management needs to be a priority. But when ESA reformers talk about modernizing, many ears perk up in conservation communities. Noah Greenwald is one of them. He's with the Center for Biological Diversity. I think these calls are entirely disingenuous. Modernize, you know, when it comes from the likes of Matt Mead, is a euphemism for gut protections for endangered species. Greenwald takes issue with their complaints about the act. He says it shouldn't be judged by how few species have been removed from the list, but by how many have been saved. Greenwald says the ESA is an insurance policy for when states fail to protect their species. The states have primary jurisdiction over wildlife within their boundaries. The fact that species get listed reflects the fact that they weren't able to manage that. He says states simply don't have the expertise or funding to properly protect their species, and that a potential return to state management would result in an uptick of extinctions. 
Back at Mortensen Lake, Taylor gets emotional when she remembers reintroducing toads there for the first time over 20 years ago, when they were on the brink of extinction. And seeing all carcass after carcass when they were dying, and we were down to like approximately 50 animals, so it's just phenomenal to be out here today doing this. Two decades of collaboration, and now a total of about 1,500 Wyoming toads. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Cooper McKim. For nine years now, the Draper Museum in Cody has been studying golden eagles and what they mean for the dwindling sagebrush ecosystem where they live. That study will end next year. So Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards joined researchers on a trip to banned eaglets and find out what all this research is revealing about this iconic species. It's a chilly day in May, in the middle of an energy field south of Cody. A group of us watch as rock climber Nick Sheravella repels off a sandstone cliff to a nest of large branches below. Draper Museum curator and renowned raptor biologist Charles Preston gestures us over to take a look. Right here, just be real quiet, but you can kind of look over. You can just barely see one of the chicks, but you can see a Two fluffy there. white birds look out. The eaglets don't make a peep as Sheravella puts falconer hoods on the nestlings to calm them. You know, these ones were, were on the younger side that we'll go in, so they were pretty, pretty tame for the most part. But lots of times they'll raise their wings at you and sometimes open their mouth. Sometimes they even hiss at you a little bit like a cat would. Sheravella places one nestling in a canvas bag and Preston hoists the bird up on a rope. Preston weighs the bird in the bag. 30, 100 grams and then carefully lifts it out. So here you can see the bird and he's, but we're gonna take control of those feet as soon as we can. They can do a lot of damage with these talons. There we go. There's a beautiful bird. A lot of down on this. This bird's just four weeks old. Preston is the author of the 2004 book, Golden Eagles, Sovereigns of the Skies. He says these birds hold a special place in our hearts, appearing on the flags of hundreds of nations. I've never been with anyone who has seen, especially their first eagle, that doesn't utter something like, wow. You know, they embody power and strength and whatever that elusive thing we call freedom is. But they embody even more to the fragile ecosystem where they serve as an apex predator with its seven-foot wingspans, incredible eyesight, and sharp talons. It is at the top of the food chain, and as an adult, uh, there's not another predator above it that will uh, uh, will nobody, prey on nobody it. Eats, Nobody's yeah. Eats an eagle. <laughs> That's right. So it's like wolves. So even great horned owl can be considered a an apex predator. And Preston says such predators help balance the entire ecosystem community below them. Out here, that means all the way down the food chain to the rabbits and the sagebrush. When cottontail populations crash or go low, then eagle reproduction really drops as well, and vice versa. Uh, when the rabbits come back, the eagles really reproduce much uh, more effectively. But in many areas of the American West, the sagebrush where those cottontails thrive is filling in with invasive cheatgrass that grows fast, but burns even faster. So you start burning cheatgrass, and guess what replaces it? More cheatgrass. And so it replaces native sagebrush, native grasses, changes the environment drastically. I mean, just amazing, and it, which changes prey for golden eagles. 
but it's also urban sprawl and wind farms and energy fields like this one that are disturbing the balance that golden eagles now reign over. Preston says, sure, right now their populations are relatively stable, but... We are finding a few nest sites and and nest territories that have been abandoned uh, over years uh, as people move into an area, as there's more and more activity. Some of the nest sites Preston studies even have prehistoric Thunderbird rock art near them. He says that could mean eagles have occupied these same nests for hundreds or even thousands of years. Preston says wildlife agencies should learn from the success of the greater sage-grouse and start protecting golden eagles and their sagebrush habitat now, not later. That's why he's working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the energy industry to come up with a plan of action. We did crisis management with peregrine falcons. We did it with bald eagles. We've done it with wolves. But if we can avoid the crisis management and instead manage to avoid crisis, I think it's pretty exciting, and that's the way to go in the 21st century. Good. Take bird on. It's time to return the eaglets to their nests. Preston lowers the second one down to climber Sheravella, who's been installing a remote camera to learn what prey they're eating in this energy field. Nick, all smooth? Really good. Are there any prey remains? We, we got a bag full of it. Looks like, looks like rabbits. Preston says while this initial phase of the study is wrapping up, he plans to make sure the data collection continues well into the future. So Nick's taking off the hood now, and we'll place them right back in the nest where they'll feel comfortable and stay. <laughs> the question is, will golden eagles stay put in these increasingly disturbed landscapes? For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Last year, a mysterious collection of stuffed birds was found at the Laramie High School. The discovery was perplexing at the time. But as Willow Belden reports, it ended up being a goldmine for scientists at the University of Wyoming. It all started last summer, when a biology teacher was packing up her classroom to move to a new building. In the process, she came across some boxes of stuffed birds. Nobody at the school knew anything about them, and none of the teachers wanted them, so they offered them to the University of Wyoming. I've heard this before. I've worked with museums for almost 15 years now. That's Brian Barber with the Biodiversity Institute at UW. And usually when someone calls and say they have some specimen that they want to donate to the museum, it's invariably something like, you know, a a piece of a deer in a shoebox. In other words, useless from a scientific perspective. But when Barber went out to the high school to take a look, he was in for a big surprise. A pile of cardboard boxes awaited him. So we just opened one and it was kind of like Christmas. Kind of like Christmas. This wasn't some piece of a deer in a shoebox. This was a whole bird, stuffed, mounted, and in remarkably good shape. As Barber opened box after box, he got more and more excited. So yeah, we just kept finding more and more of these. They were ducks and falcons and even small passerines like robins and bluebirds. And what was truly exciting was that each of these specimens came with a bunch of information. Whoever had prepared them had painstakingly recorded all sorts of details about where and when the birds were found, their sex, how big they were, etc. That's very valuable for us from a research perspective because this serves as a voucher. This is a real tangible piece of data that says this animal was found here 
at this locality at this time and place. It's kind of like finding a driver's license on a dead body. It gives you real solid information about what you're looking at. And when you have that kind of information, a specimen becomes more than just a stuffed bird. It becomes something you can actually use for science. For example, one of the birds in this collection was a ruby-throated hummingbird. Now, ruby-throated hummingbirds don't usually exist in this area, so without the information attached to it, you might assume it was collected somewhere else, hundreds of miles away. But because it was carefully labeled, you know that this bird really was here at a specific point in time. Suffice it to say, this collection was a wonderful find, and Barber was more than happy to take it back to the university. He was still baffled, though. Who was the mysterious benefactor who had collected all these birds? Finally, one day, he got his answer, completely by accident. It happened because someone was taking a tour of the Biodiversity Institute, saw the birds sitting out on a table, and recognized them. I said, where did these come from? And the gal on the tour said, oh yeah, we got these from the high school. I said, you have got to be kidding. This is my dad's collection. Sure enough, this woman, whose name is Diane Trotter, was the daughter of the man behind all these bird specimens. My name is Dave Tyndall, and I'm an ex-teacher. Dave Tyndall still lives in Laramie, and he's the man who made this collection way back in 1964. It all started because he had convinced the high school to let him create and teach a new upper-level biology class. But he didn't have any materials for that class, not even textbooks. So he decided to make a bird collection to use as a teaching aid. I'd shoot the bird and skin it and treat the hide and then stuff it with old mattress, uh, clean old mattress uh, stuffing that I'd get out at the dump. So were you preparing all these birds at your house? Yes. Yes, I skinned most of them on the kitchen table. Tyndall collected and prepared more than 100 birds that summer, and he used them in his classes for the rest of his teaching career. But after he retired, they got packed away into a storage room. Now that UW has them, the specimens are housed in a slick, modern facility on campus. Brian Barber says they're already being used to teach undergrads, and they could be valuable from a research perspective as well. With the use of fancy DNA technology, specimens like this could help scientists figure out how different species are related, or how bird populations have changed over time. And down the road, Barber says, researchers could find even more uses for them, things we can't even imagine now. We don't always know what the future holds as far as research, right? So we collect specimens under the idea that technology will improve and somebody in the future, hundreds of years from now, or maybe some kid in fifth grade class right now will be able to do some analysis that we never imagined. And if that happens, Dave Tyndall's collection, these birds that were prepared one summer on a kitchen table, could help unlock scientific secrets decades or centuries down the road. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Willow Belden. The original version of this story first aired on Out There, a podcast that Willow hosts, which explores big questions through intimate stories in the outdoors. When we come back, we'll hear about the Cheyenne program Keynines for Mobility. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Several years ago, Cheyenne residents Bob and Jill Jensen went looking for a service dog to assist Jill with her multiple sclerosis. 
their search took them to Kansas City, where they acquired their animal. The couple then wondered about developing a training facility for various types of service dogs in Cheyenne, which is unique in this region. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that happened five years ago, and the program is thriving. The project that Bob and Jill Jensen developed is called Canines for Mobility. Jensen ran the state's economic development effort known as the Wyoming Business Council, is a lobbyist and an entrepreneur. Jensen says developing a service dog training facility for Cheyenne was a good fit. We just got very interested in the service dog industry because we live it every day. We, we can see what the dog ha- enabled her to do and to be much more independent Um, than she would would be otherwise. Thanks to several donations and hard work, the project was underway. Jensen says they were able to hire the woman who trained their dog in Kansas City, named Michelle Werner, to run the program. She's been training service dogs for over 20 years and loves her work. The assistance dogs give someone independence uh, that they're looking for so that they don't have to depend on their family, their friends, or hired attendant care um, in order to stay in their own home, uh, participate in their community, or even hold a full-time job. The training facility is located on beautiful ranch land and resembles a mini doggy daycare on the inside with plenty of places for the dogs to play, get worn down, and train. So they have lots of toys to play on. And that big tire up there is filled with sand. And of course they have a fire hydrant. It's fake. (laughs) The dogs are like any other. They love to play and of course sniff. Warner says they start with puppy trainers and then it's on to the next stage. All of them have a foundation for retrieving and tugging, working beside some sort of mobility device. Once they're matched up with their person and I know, then I will use the exact same device, whether it's a walker with a seat on it or it's a power chair or a manual chair, canes. And then I start to reenact how that person moves and maneuvers and the dog learns to do the skills for me The training takes about nine months. Then she goes to the home of the new owner to help the dog get into sync with the owner in their new surroundings. And I go live with that person for about two weeks. And I teach them how to use the dog in every aspect of their life. Werner is about ready to fly home with Callie Yader and her new dog, George. Yader has cerebral palsy and is required to ride in a wheelchair. She has had a service dog for over 20 years, and she says they perform important tasks. Retrieval of dropped objects, transferring from my manual chair to my power chair, tugging open a door to get outside, tugging off gloves in the wintertime. And then if this chair breaks down, um, he also has been trained to pull the manual chair that I use. Yetter says when she and her dogs are in sync, they can do some remarkable things. A couple of years before my previous dog retired, we were taking the bus in Kansas City, and I would have to change to get onto two different buses just to get up to work. And without my dog being there, I don't think that's something I would have done on my own. Yader says the dogs occasionally have to learn new skills as the owner's needs change. Bob Jensen remembers his wife's first dog having to adjust to changes in her movement devices. He braced her uh, when she walked. Uh, Then he had to understand how to pull a manual wheelchair. And then he had to understand how to walk beside a power chair and not pull the power chair. He went from a bracing dog primarily to uh, a dog that picked things up when she dropped them uh, and opening doors. 
When they are on the job, they are serious. But the CEO, Michelle Werner, says they need downtime to still be dogs. While she gets attached to them, she doesn't mind when they go because they are providing a wonderful service. No, it's really not hard to let him go. I got three more here train. <laughs> For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. You can learn more about Canines for Mobility on their website and Facebook page. Wyoming Public Media is launching our newest podcast next week. It's called Spoken Words, and it features authors writing from or about the Mountain West. Here's a preview to introduce us to the show, its producers, and some of the authors. From Wyoming Public Media, this, 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 is, this is Spoken, spoken, spoken Words. Spoken Words. This is Spoken Words. I'm Micah Schweitzer. So here at Wyoming Public Media, we're pretty immersed in the lore of the Mountain West. Laramie, where we're based, is a quintessential western town, an old railroad stop with tales of gunfights and brothels, and the only prison Butch Cassidy ever saw the inside of. But defining the Mountain West isn't that simple. What the Mountain West meant to people then, and what it means to people today, especially people left out of the dominant Old West narrative, is a different story. So we're starting a new podcast, Spoken Words, in which we speak with authors living in the West, writing from the West, or writing about the West from all over the world. These authors will read from their work and talk about everything from the gritty details of their careers and the writing process to the broader questions of history and identity in the Mountain West. The podcast is produced in collaboration with the University of Wyoming's MFA in Creative Writing program with the help of several of its students. How much intro do you want? I'm Kevin Kelly. I am from Boise, Idaho. My name is Annie Osborne. I'm a first-year fiction writer. I am Ammon Medina. I write between genres. My name is Brooklyn Gray, and I have recently graduated with a bachelor's in journalism. These are the first student producers for Spoken Words. And over the last two semesters, they've been finding and interviewing a broad range of authors and producing the episodes you'll hear. But you won't hear their voices on the show, so here's a little peek behind the scenes. I love podcasts. Um, I like to listen to them when I go on hikes or when I go on like a road trip or backpacking. And A lot of people binge Netflix and I binge podcasts. I was studying abroad in Florence and I got really, not homesick, but I wanted familiar sounds. So I started listening to the radio a lot, podcasts a lot, and I was like, wait a second, this is a lot of fun. This is what I'm studying. And so when I got back, I just came in. I was just like, hey, can I work for you, please? I got interested in this specifically because I love listening to writers. I love listening to writers talk about their writing. And I think some really interesting and exciting stuff can come out from just a conversation with another writer. Our student producers, all writers themselves, bring relevant influences and experiences into the interviews. They've elicited some really surprising and fascinating answers from authors writing in a wide range of genres. You know, we were able to talk to poets and fiction writers and nonfiction writers and sci-fi writers. Some of the authors that I'm interviewing are very heavy hitters in the environmental field. I have interviewed award-winning authors and best-selling authors. I got to interview one of the best climbers in the world. You know, it's these two poet laureates from Texas driving around the U.S., going to a bunch of different parks, and they were just coming off of Yellowstone and super excited about 
this project that they're going to be doing over the next several years, you know, and we're cataloging the first step of it. They find really personal ways of just engaging with the Mountain West and with the environment that I just respect and that I'm going to steal. The authors we have on the program have vastly different perspectives on the West. On the one hand, there are those like Sebastian Barry, who have never lived on this side of the Atlantic and experienced the American West from a distance. If I'd never been to America, if I was an Irish person who'd never left those Wicklow Hills, as many haven't, I would still be capable of being in love with America simply because it is our imaginative world. The great cargo cult of American culture that comes, washes onto the Irish shore has replaced in many ways you know, ancient Irish mythologies that were supposed to be used to as children. It is all the John Ford films, and it is all, you know, Laurel and Hardy. It is the Marx Brothers, room service, room service, send us up a room. I mean, it's all those things have inhabited us, so we're almost crazy passportless citizens of America, even without going there. And on the other end of the spectrum, we'll feature writers like Nina McConaughey, who grew up in the heart of the Mountain West, but also feels alienated from it in certain ways. I'm biracial, so my mom's from India, my dad's from Ireland. And so, you know, growing up in Wyoming, I didn't look like anyone else. And I think that certainly influenced the way I thought about myself in relation to others. And I definitely, I think about identity all the time. And in terms of Wyoming, I think that's the other huge influence because it's where I grew up. It's where I still live and work. And I I love it here, you know, the land and the mountains and the prairie. But there are other aspects of living here in terms of diversity. And I don't see a reflection of myself anytime I ever go outside. The complexity of the West and the writing it inspires is what our producers love about working on spoken words. And I've been thinking a lot about what West means in my own work and what West means now versus like our old Western tropes, you know, our outlaw history, our land claim history, bad relations with the original peoples, you know, indigenous peoples. You get so many different perspectives on what it's like to live here or be passing through here or have this as part of you that's you're not quite sure how to reckon with. Wyoming and the Mountain West, Montana, Colorado, what have you, we're all reduced to these minuscule cliche stereotypes. I'm like, wait a second. No, that's wrong. And I can tell you why. Those are some of the voices behind the new podcast, Spoken Words. The first two episodes come out on Tuesday, June 13th. After that, the show will feature a new author every other week. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Google Play Music, or listen to Spoken Words at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Thank you for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or if you want to hear it or any segment again, you can find it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also sign up for our podcast on that website or on iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite good story ideas for future programs. You can submit those via the web or on Facebook. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.